the National Archives podcast series. Writer of the Month, Joan of Arc. Presented by Helen Caster. This talk was recorded on the 11th of February 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our second uh, Writer of the Month this year. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Helen Caster here today. She was my director of studies at university and has been very much on the history pedestal for me ever since. But um, aside from that, she has some very distinguished credentials. Uh, she's a fellow of Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, a medieval historian. Uh, she's going to be talking to me today about her latest book about Joan of Arc. Um, but before that, she, her, one of her first books was about the Paston family, based on their letters. Uh, that book, uh, Blood and Roses, was um, shortlisted for the prestigious Samuel Johnson History Prize and won the Beatrice White uh, Prize from the English Association. Association. Um, and then her second book, She Wolves, uh, was about medieval queenship, and that was widely regarded as one of the best books of 2010. So we're um, absolutely delighted to welcome her here today. Um, alongside her research of a very high caliber, she also presents Making History for BBC Radio 4 and also uh, has done numerous uh, BBC uh, 4 programs uh, based on her research. So please join me in welcoming Helen Castor. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> So the first section of our interview is going to focus on Joan, the book, then on uh, how Helen approached the topic as a historian, and then finally, Helen as a writer. Um, so firstly, uh, why don't you tell us uh, what drew you to Joan of Arc in the first place? What people who have written uh, about Joan before tend to say at this point is, I've always been fascinated with Joan of Arc when, ever since I was tiny. I have to confess that isn't true for me. And I think one of the reasons it isn't true for me is that we all sort of know the story, but it tend, the story we know tends to be the story of the icon of the saint, the, you know, the outline of, of the girl who, who then turns up in our children's history books, you know, burned at the stake but rising again to be, to be canonized later on. And the problem for me with icons and saints is that they're almost by definition two-dimensional and I've always been interested in history as something very human about um, what it is to be human in the complex world that we all live in. So for me, um, Joan didn't exert a huge fascination when I was tiny. What happened to me was that in um, going around giving talks like this one about she-wolves, uh, a book about women trying to exercise power in the Middle Ages. I found myself saying over and over again, of course, one of the major um, obstacles in the way of women rulers in the Middle Ages was that women couldn't lead armies. They couldn't be soldiers. Apart from Joan of Arc, I'd say, and look what happened to her. And it was at that point that I started to realize that I didn't really know what had happened to her. I knew the the vague outline, I knew the peasant girl in the fields outside Domremy hearing voices and going off to lead the army, but I didn't understand the human reality of it. I didn't understand the flesh and blood Joan, the, the living, breathing uh, woman who'd lived in the early 15th century, and that's what I wanted to go in search of. 
really, uh, when having, having read your book and not being so familiar with the outlines of the story, I must say, despite having been on a French exchange in Orléans, I have been around the museum, but I didn't, it wasn't imprinted, imprinted on my brain in Delaby. But so I really enjoyed the book and it just seems like an incredible story that this peasant teenage girl sort of finds herself um, sort of getting an audience with the king and that, you know, her supposed the voices that she's heard from God um, are kind of taken seriously by the king. She, she said she wanted to save France and I wondered maybe you could tell our audience a bit about what she was saving France from, what was the context in which uh, she had these dreams? Well, uh, for, for me this was absolutely crucial as a starting point of the story because uh, in order to understand what Joan thought she was doing, as you say, we've, we've got to understand the ferocious complexity of the political world that she was born into. Um, the story we all know tends to assume that she was saving France from the English, that this was part of the Hundred Years' War, which indeed it was. The, the English had been staking a claim to the Kingdom of France and at various points since the mid-14th century had been trying to make that claim real um, by sending armies over. That's an important part of the story, but it's not the whole thing, because from the um, early, very early years of the 15th century, France had also been at war with itself. France's king, Charles VI, suffered from a psychological, psychiatric illness, which meant that periodically he simply didn't know who he was or believed that he was made of glass and that he would shatter into a thousand pieces if anyone touched him or would refuse to wash or change his clothes for weeks or months on end. And that meant that in a personal monarchy, the operation of government became very, very difficult. And a huge rivalry uh, broke out around the King Charles VI for control of his government. And this rivalry very rapidly degenerated into civil war between two factions known after um, their respective leaders at a certain point as the Burgundians, who were led by the Duke of Burgundy, and the Armagnacs. And by the time um, Joan was growing into her teens, what had happened to make the situation even more bloody and even more brutal was that one side in this uh, ferocious civil war, the Burgundians, had allied themselves with the invading English. It's as though in our own Wars of the Roses, it wasn't just Lancastrians against Yorkists, but let's say the Lancastrians had allied themselves with an invading French army and recognized the King of France as the rightful King of England. That's what was happening in France in the uh, early decades of the 15th century. And this division went so deep, um, that Burgundian decision to ally themselves with the English arose out of a uh, dreadful, fateful incident in 1419, when the young Dauphin, Joan's Dauphin as he would become, uh, still only a teenager at that point, had arranged to meet the Duke of Burgundy, the leader of the other faction, um, in a very carefully negotiated diplomatic meeting held on a bridge across a river so that we, under elaborate safe conduct. And when they met within this small enclosure on a bridge, the Dauphin's attendants had hacked the Duke to death with an axe. So for the Burgundians, the Armagnacs and their leader, the Dauphin, were not the rightful heirs to France. Instead, what they were was a, um, a faction of the false French led by a perjurer and a murderer who had forfeited all right to inherit the throne of France. So 
When we talk about the French and the English, we have to remember that we can't simply talk about the French. We're talking about a kingdom divided on itself, where there was absolutely no certainty about which right was going to prevail. Joan believed that her Dauphin was the rightful king, to, king of France. But there were many, many of her compatriots, many, many French men and women in the 1420s who believed that the Dauphin was nothing of the kind and that the rightful king of France was actually the king of England. It's a very, very complex situation. Yeah, which you explain very clearly in the first section of your book. It takes um, quite a while for Joan to turn up in my book, I, I, I have first, to confess. The first 90 pages, Joan, Joan doesn't appear. You really, it's very exciting when she finally comes on the scene. And, and partly what I wanted to do there, again, is, is if you read most books about Joan of Arc, start with Joan. So you start in a field at Domremy, and the world eventually widens out, and you eventually see this conflict that's going on. But the conflict gets filled in, the backstory gets filled in, in a couple of pages, usually. And what I wanted to do was make clear how long-lasting, how profound, how terrifying that conflict was and how uncertain its outcome, and also give a sense of how desperate the Armagnacs were for a saviour. I almost, I hope that that 90 pages will give some sense of what I was thinking as I wrote um, of as a, as a Joan-shaped hole in the Armagnac ranks. They didn't know it was Joan they were looking for, but they knew they needed someone to come and offer leadership and charisma and military will to drive their cause forward, because it certainly wasn't the Dauphin who was going to do it. Yeah, and so what we see is what appears to be this extraordinary set of circumstances in which this teenage girl gets an audience uh, with, the, with the Dauphin, um, but the first 90 pages of Helen's book really explains, uh, uh, I'd say, why the Dauphin is willing or open to, to listening to her. Um, and one of the favorite, uh, part, my favorite parts of the book is where Joan arrives on the scene at court to meet the Dauphin, and uh, just her treatment and reception are fascinating. Maybe you could uh, tell the audience a bit about that. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you picked up on this element of the book because to me it was absolutely crucial in terms of understanding not only what Joan was doing but precisely what was going through the minds of all the people around her. I think when we're writing history hindsight is obviously a great help to us because we know what happened but it can also be a great hindrance because it narrows down the range of possibilities, if you like, as we're imagining ourselves into a moment. We know what the outcome was, so we tend to be looking for things that explain that outcome. Whereas what I, what I, I try to do in writing narrative history of the kind I write now is to try to put myself in the place of the people who were there and try to imagine the full range of possibilities to understand what it was to make decisions, to say things, to do things without any certainty about what's coming next. And so I think the key um, to that moment in 1429, February 1429, or probably February 1429, because when you drill deep into Joan's story, so few of the facts are really hard and fast and possible to establish between, um, beyond all possible doubt. But it was probably the 23rd of February 1429 that she turned up at Chinon. Um, it's clear that... Uh, the Dauphin and the advisors who surrounded him, particularly his very formidable mother-in-law, Yolande of Aragon, the Dowager Duchess of Anjou, who seems to have been a key player in this whole process, but like so many women politicians operating 
um, in, uh, backstage in the corridors of power. It's quite hard to pin down exactly what she was doing. Um, but the Dauphin and, and his advisors were desperate for some kind of salvation. The Dauphin himself was not a military leader of any significance at all. He, he was physically quite ungainly, he had these funny weak legs and walked in a rather odd manner, contemporaries um, noted. Um, not a warlike man, one chronicler said. Uh, he had a habit of ordering very expensive suits of armor for himself and then putting someone else at the head of his army. Um, so if they were looking for military salvation, it wasn't going to come from him. We might see the arrival of a peasant girl dressed as a boy saying she'd come with a message from God as a great moment of hope, which indeed it was. But it was also a moment of anxiety, if not terror, because if Joan really had been sent by God, how wonderful. The Armagnacs, you know, the sun had come out in the Armagnac world. But if she hadn't been sent by God, if instead her voices came to her from the devil, then perhaps this was a moment when hell was seeking to trick the Dauphin into disaster and destruction. So the key question for the people at court in the spring of 1429 was not principally whether Joan was mad or not. The idea that she was hearing voices from heaven was perfectly plausible to people in the early 15th century. They knew that God could intervene in the world in any way he liked and that otherworldly beings, angels and demons, did speak to men and women of entirely sound mind. That was all perfectly plausible. The big problem was how to tell whether messages were coming from heaven or hell. Um, and this is where the theologians came in, because this was a key element of theological study. The greatest theologian in France at that point, a man named Jean Gerson, had written three treatises on the subject of what was called the discernment of spirits, how to tell where, where voices, where visions, where messages came from. And so that was the process through which they put Joan. The Dauphin sent her off to Poitiers um, with the most learned collection of theologians he could muster and had them examine her to decide whether she should be taken seriously or not, whether she should be listened to or not. And the remarkable thing that emerges from that investigation at Poitiers is that the theologians weren't really sure. They couldn't come to a definitive answer. They said they found no evil in her, that she seemed to be a pious and humble girl. Crucially, she was a virgin. The first thing that had happened was that she had to be physically inspected by some ladies of the court, because if an unmarried girl in the early 15th century saying she came with a message from God turned out not to be a virgin, then you didn't listen to a single other word she said, clearly. Um, but once it had been established that she was a virgin and she seemed to be pious and humble and to be living a godly life, but the theologians said they couldn't prove that her message did come from God, but they also couldn't prove that it didn't. And so the decision was taken that she should be put to the test. And the test was she should be sent to Orléans, which had been under siege by the English for months. She should be sent there with troops. And then it should be seen what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned that uh, she was dressed in, one of the things you mentioned, she was dressed in men's clothing. What did the theologians make of that? The theologians were not at all sure about that. After all, it says in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that a woman in men's clothing is an abomination unto the Lord. 
in principle, women dressed as men were not a good thing. On the other hand, if she had been sent by God to work a miracle, then a teenage girl dressed as a boy was a particularly miraculous way to go about it, <laughs> potentially. Um, it, it's a very interesting and difficult thing, this, this, um, the question of Joan's dress. It seems to me that it started as a practical measure. When she left home, when she left the town of Vaucouleur, which is near Doremi, um, to make her way across country to Chinon, she was going to be riding across enemy territory accompanied by six men-at-arms. If she was going to do that safely, quickly, wearing men's clothes was a much, much more practical solution. It would give her some measure of disguise, it would allow her to ride astride a horse, and it would give her some measure of protection because men's hose were tied onto their, the clothes on their upper body with, with cords. And the descriptions we have of, of Joan's clothes suggest that her, hers were tied on with many more cords than would be usual. Um, certainly it would be much harder, for example, to rape her if she was dressed as a man. So there were very practical reasons um, for her to have short hair and men's clothes. By the time she arrived at Chinon, it seems that it, she had incorporated it into her sense of mission, that her, her dress was part of her exceptionalness. And she is truly exceptional in this sense. There are stories, there are saints' lives where we see female saints dressing as men, but usually that's as a disguise in order to keep them safe, to allow them to pass, for instance, as a monk in a monastery until their sex can be revealed sort of later on in safety. So what Joan was so unusual in doing was dressing as a boy while not pretending to be anything other than a girl, and that was what was so challenging. The theologians on her own side got over it, they weren't entirely comfortable with it, but they got over it by arguing partly that it was necessary if she were going to ride with soldiers, and partly that the New Testament, the prescriptions of the New Testament, could be held to override um, prescriptions given in the Old Testament. So it was a sort of fudge. But as you can imagine, theologians on the other side made hay with it, because it certainly was not a, a normal or comfortable thing for a young woman to do. I think one of the things that you sort of that I learnt from reading the book was the kind of almost the sense of powerlessness of the theologians of the people at court as they were trying to get it right. Was she from, from the devil or sent from God? And uh, I guess the clothes are a part of that. And maybe you know, obviously initially they end up overlooking that, but then later on in the story, um, the clothes come to have greater significance, and it's seen as kind of a very bad sign that she she persists in wearing men's clothes. So. And, and I think this is um, a, a huge part of this story, the fact that we are seeing a civil war where both sides are claiming the kingdom of France as theirs and God's protection as theirs. So it almost becomes inevitable, an inevitable sort of catch-22, that arguments that work for Joan's own side are not going to work when she is eventually, we haven't got there yet, but when she's eventually captured by the other side. Um, for example, if the test of whether she comes from God or not is being sent to raise the siege at Orléans, and if the fact that she succeeded in raising the siege at Orléans is taken as proof that she came from God, well, that is a proof that resides in the fact that she beat the English. And of course she beat the English because God is opposed to the English being in the Kingdom of France if you're on Joan's side. If you then find yourself in the hands of the English later on and they ask you, where's your proof you come from God? 
saying, well, I beat you at Orléans is not really going to work <laughs> as, as an argument. So proofs that work for one side or things that can be justified in terms acceptable to one side, almost by definition, will not work once you're looking at it from the perspective of the other side. And what I was trying to do throughout the book was move between the different perspectives of the Armagnacs, the Burgundians, and the English, because all of those perspectives made sense in their own terms. And I'm trying to sort of inhabit all of them so that we can see how all parties thought, really genuinely believed they were doing the right thing. So you have this, this context at court where they're not sure whether she's from the devil or from heaven, and yet they're so desperate and they can't find any proof that she's definitively from the devil. So um, the Dauphin side throw their lot in with, with Joan and she ends up spending several weeks uh, sort of putting on a set of armour for the first time and kind of learning how to walk around in it, how to be on a horse. And it, you know, it just seems uh, when you sort of think about it from the outside, it's a crazy a crazy set of circumstances. So then, so then after this sort of few weeks of preparation, she she leads the the army, uh, the the Dauphin's army, uh, to Orléans and to victory. But what did the English make? What did the other side make of, of Joan? Uh, it it is a truly extraordinary moment, Orléans. I ought to say, um, it, it, when we say led the Dauphin's army to Orléans, she, she did, but it, in a fairly limited sense. This was, this was a test. Part of the point of Orléans as a finite task was that it could be contained, so that if she failed totally, the Dauphin wouldn't have put all his resources behind her. He could say, well, we were just seeing, and we, now we know. So it, it's a very particular moment when she's sent with a few thousand troops to confront an English army at Orléans, which itself only consists, as far as we can tell, of a few thousand troops. So it's, the situation in the town is one of stalemate, of desperation on both sides. The English can't surround the town completely and cut it off and actually push the siege to a conclusion. Equally, the town can't push them back and escape. And so what happened when Joan arrived, I and mean, we're talking about a situation of enormous uncertainty, the Dauphin's not sure what to do with her, the theologians aren't, um, and the situation at Orléans itself is, is one that is rather desperate. The only person who's sure of anything in, at the end of April 1429 is Joan, and what Joan brings to that situation is utter belief, utter conviction. She arrives, she knows exactly what she's been sent to do, and what she's been sent to do is defeat the English. And while she's waiting to start the fighting, there's a sort of uncertain moment at Orléans because what the theologians had said was she should be sent to Orléans with the troops. They hadn't said what should happen when she got there. So when she did get there, she was greeted like an angel from God, one contemporary eyewitness says. The people of Orléans mobbed her in the streets. Hope had come, help had come. But no chain of command had been established. Who was actually in charge? Who was going to say where the troops should be? Most of the troops she arrived with were actually sent back to base, and someone had to go back and fetch them, because without troops, what was she supposed to do? So there were these few days of uncertainty when she first got there. And what you say in um, She-Wolves is that you know, the problem with female monarchy is that there's a real sort of conviction at the time that, that female monarchs are so deficient because they can't leave. Absolutely. So, so was Joan actually going to fight at the head of the... How was this going to work? And during those, those first few days when she was there, she spent a lot of time sort of getting the lie of the land up on the walls, looking out at the English. And she had a letter written. She dictated a letter, had it tied to an arrow, and fired 
um, over the walls into the English camp. And this letter basically demanded that the English should leave. And if they didn't leave, she would attack, kill them all. And she would make a war cry, she said, that would be remembered forever. I mean, it's extraordinary, the conviction with which she, sp she speaks. And the contemporary description we have in the, in the journal of the, um, the Chronicle, called the Journal of the Siege of Orléans, um, describes the English soldiers in the English camp reading this letter and crying derisively, news from the Armagnac whore, because a young girl running around with soldiers with her legs on show wearing male armour could only be a whore, a witch, an emissary from the devil. But of course, as soon as the fighting started and Joan's conviction began to translate itself into conviction on the part of her soldiers and a definitive push of, of a kind that no one had been able to muster in, uh, until that point, as her soldiers gathered strength, gathered courage, gathered conviction, the English began to falter. Because if you've been told someone has arrived from God and you're, you're busy making fun of them, but if, if she starts having uh, success, your own courage starts to waver. And that's what seems to have happened to the English. They got frightened. And the more Joan seemed to be strong, the weaker they got. And in the end, it took only four days of fighting for the English to be pushed out of Orléans. Um, and that, of course, while explicable, perhaps in terms of the psychology of the moment, seemed to contemporaries, seemed to the Armagnacs, to be the miracle for which they'd been waiting. Yeah, and then sort of taking the story up from there, um, Joan is then successful in seeing the Dauphin uh, be crowned King of France. Um, and then, but the, the English and, uh, and the Burgundians are less keen to be, to have their claim to the throne quashed and there are sort of subsequent uh, sort of battles. But, and in, in one of these battles, Joan is then captured. And uh, what we see sort of, I guess, from a you know, switching perspective is that suddenly Joan's sort of, whether Joan sent from God is cast hugely in doubt. The fact that she's wearing male clothing suddenly seemed a lot more pernicious than it did before when they were winning. And uh, she ends up being put on trial as a heretic by um, the sort of church courts. Um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about that trial. Yes. Um, and, and I think what you're saying about the change of perspective is absolutely crucial here, because in a sense, her own side had already, by the time she, she was captured, her own side had already begun to find her a lot more of an uncomfortable presence than she'd been in her moment of glory, certainly at Orléans, or then at Reims, as you say, at the coronation of the Dauphin. There are these um, few months, and it really is only a few months, four or five months, when Joan seems to sweep everything before her. She wins at Orléans, she then, the Dauphin gathers a, a large army and marches deep into enemy territory to Reims, where historically the kings of France have always been crowned. And towns are just opening their gates as they pass because Joan seems to be unstoppable. But after the coronation, the key question is what to do next. The miracle has happened. So do you, allow, do you carry on allowing Joan to lead your army or, or, or should you go back to normal now, the miracle, the moment of miracles? Is it over? Is, is it not over? They allow her to attack Paris. She's absolutely determined. She must, you know, the, the war is not won. The English are still in France. She must attack Paris. They give her one day to attack Paris. And Paris is a very different kettle of fish from Orléans. Paris has the greatest fortifications west of Constantinople, and Paris is not about to give in. It's a very stalwartly Anglo-Burgundian city. And once Joan has failed at Paris, then the question is what to do with her. 
because if miracles are no longer happening, then why is a teenage girl leading your army? And so the story of the months leading up to her capture is one of great uncertainty, really. Joan still wants to fight, but actually there are, there's all sorts of diplomacy going on, other solutions, the men around the king want to negotiate. Joan doesn't do negotiation, messengers from God don't usually. Um, and so in a way, it's almost quite convenient for the Armagnacs by the time she's captured because they really don't know what to do with her. On the other hand, it's not great that the woman who has stood beside your king when he's been crowned at Reims has just been captured. So what the Armagnacs do is disown her, basically. They, the, the Archbishop of Reims writes a letter as soon as Joan is captured saying, well, clearly this doesn't mean that God is not on our side. God is still on our side, of course. He's just had enough of Joan because she's got too proud She's got above herself, and God is taking her down a peg or two. But it doesn't matter, because we already have another emissary from God. Uh, and right on cue, they have this almost anti-Joan that they found, called a boy called William the Shepherd, who rides side saddle on his horse, has stigmata on his hands and feet, and is very gentle and pious and wouldn't dream of leading an army. So they're already going, forget Joan, we've got the next one here. Um, meanwhile... It's very much a you only win when you're you only sing when you're winning situation because the Armagnacs have been crowing about Joan while she wins battles and the English and Burgundians have been very quiet. Now the English and Burgundians have got her, the Armagnacs are going very quiet, saying forget about her, and the English and Burgundians are what they're aiming to do is put on a huge trial that they know will be scrutinized across Europe to prove that God is not an Armagnac, to prove that God is not with Joan. And it takes months and months of preparation to establish the parameters of the trial. Get, I mean, this is taken very seriously. We might want to call it a show trial because it was designed for show, but it was in no sense a kangaroo court. The theologians involved, the Burgundian French theologians involved, were exercised to the nth degree to, that their procedure should be proper and that their investigations should prove what they knew to be true, which was that Joan was a heretic. Do you think there was an, ever any chance of her not being found to be a heretic? Uh, no. <laughs> but, but precisely because of the, um, the logic that I was describing earlier, that, that, that if you claim to come from God and you claim that God's message is that he supports the Armagnacs, then if you're English or Burgundian, that can't be a message from God because they know that God supports the English and the Burgundians. So that, that there is a sort of logical problem <laughs> with what Joan claims. I don't think that court would ever have found her not to be a heretic. And there is a wonderful symmetry between the letter that opens the trial. Um, if you, the whole transcript survives, by the way, and the document is fascinating and crucial to what we're talking about. But the letter that opens the trial describes all the crimes of which Joan is vehemently suspected, and they're all in a long list. And then pretty much the sentence at the end, you, know, you, can, you can match them up um, pretty, pretty closely. However, that doesn't mean to say they weren't taking the task seriously, nor that they were not concerned for the theological truth of what they were doing. I don't think Joan would ever have been found not guilty, but I think there was genuine concern on the part of the theologians involved for the possibility that they might succeed in saving her soul by getting her to admit her heresy, confess her guilt, and resubmit herself to the authority of the church, the true church, as they saw it, in other words, the, the Burgundian church. So I think it's a very complex process that has an integrity of its own, 
it's just an integrity that would never have admitted the possibility that Joan was not heretical. And it was, um, by all accounts, it was a very long trial and a trial in which she was the youngest and she was the only female present. And yet, um, from everything that I've now read about her, her trial, she, right until the end, she remains very faced, feisty, I suppose is the word. She, she's very confident in her, presumably, you know, the, her first experience at court. It's, it's a remarkable, a remarkable process, Joan's trial, from so many points of view. We have huge amounts of information about Joan compared to most people of her time and certainly her class. We have chronicles, we have poems, we have letters written by people who knew her, a few. We have financial accounts that tell us how much her armour cost, for example, it was clearly very spiffy because um, <laughs> it cost a lot of money. We have lots of information, but the key to Joan's status as the icon that she has become is the transcript of her trial. She was actually tried twice, we'll come to that in a second, but the trial of 1431, she was the only witness. This was a trial of inquisition. It wasn't a trial of a kind we'd be familiar with. It wasn't um, prosecution and defence lawyers arguing and a jury listening. It was a process of inquisition where the judges interrogated a single witness in order to find out the truth. And so we hear Joan's voice speak through this trial transcript at length over many days of interrogation. And it is her voice, really, that has secured her remarkable place in history because it is a truly remarkable voice speaking. As you say, the, the will, all the, all the will and conviction that I was describing as the key factor in winning at Orléans are what emerge through the days of her trial, in what she says, in this intense and hostile environment um, where she is being interrogated for reasons I think it's clear that she doesn't entirely understand in, in terms of the way the questioning goes. The, theo the theologians, the judges, the clerics um, interrogating her have particular points of theology that they're trying to elucidate, trying to get her to say what they believe to be heretical. Now, Joan is not a theologian, so she, she answers with extraordinary defiance, extraordinary eloquence, and an extraordinarily developing tale. I think this is the other, the other key thing about the trial. When we, and the other key thing about hindsight in this story, if we tell her story, starting with her in the field at Domremy, hearing voices, hearing the voices of Saints Catherine, Margaret and Michael, as we've all read in, in the storybooks of Joan that we've had. But if we start with that moment at Domremy in the field, what we are starting with is information given by Joan at her trial in 1431, because no source before the trial transcript has Joan identifying who her voices were that spoke to her. And she doesn't start by identifying her voices in that way at the beginning of the trial either. So what I, in other words, what we see as the trial goes on is a process by which under repeated, insistent questioning, what Joan says changes. It changes day by day, session by session. It gets more elaborate, it gets more detailed, and it's not consistent or internally coherent necessarily. It's a story that evolves. So I think we have to be very, very careful with this evidence 
and see it in the context of the trial and in the context of the questioning that she was subjected to, rather than assuming we can cherry-pick details like her saints were Catherine, Michael, and Margaret, and put them back to Domi and assume that was straightforward. Because what Joan actually says about her voices at her trial, she starts off saying she won't talk about them at all. She's only ever spoken to her king about them, and she won't speak of them now. Then, under repeated questioning, she says she heard a voice, and it came with a great light. Then she says it was the voice of an angel. Then she starts talking about voices. And then as the, as the judges keep asking and keep asking, she says, well, my voices were St. Michael, St. Catherine, St. Margaret, sometimes St. Gabriel. And she starts talking about what they looked like. She starts talking about their hair, the crowns they wore, their faces. She starts talking about the fact that they, they spoke in French. There's this famous exchange where one of the judges says, did St. Margaret talk to you in English? And Joan says, why would she speak in English when she's not on the English side? Um, but these are details that are being... Used for her undoing? Well, yes, they are being dragged out of her in a very interesting process where I think, my reading of it is, the, the, the judges want these details because these are the details that are going to serve to convict her theologically. And Joan doesn't necessarily know that. What Joan knows is that she wants to prove that what she's saying is true. There is a bigger truth here for Joan, which is that her, her message, her voices, her visions, whatever they are, are true. And if it takes real concrete details to make them true, to prove that they're true in this courtroom, that's what she begins to supply. And as she begins to supply them, the judges push and push and push and want more and more and more. And what Joan doesn't know, because she's not a theologian, is that these details the devil is in these details for the theologians that are questioning her, because what they know, and Joan doesn't, is that angels are purely spiritual beings. Theologians have taken centuries to establish this, and that if she had really seen angels, it should be their spiritual essence that she's describing, instead of which she's giving them crowns and feet and hair and faces, and the more details like that she gives, the more they end up sounding like a demonic vision, not an angelic one. So it's, it's an enormously complicated document, this, this trial, and Joan's voice is compellingly charismatic all the way through. But it's not a straightforward business to take what she says as evidence that we can just backdate for the rest of her life. This is a process, a conversation, and one that happens in a very, very particular context. And to what extent is her will bent by this uh, sort of questioning? Is her faith shaken? Does she change her mind? Well, what, what is striking to start with is her, as always, utter certainty, utter conviction. She's pushed and pushed and pushed into some quite remarkable stories. I mean, the, the story of her voices and of her angels becomes a story that actually most of us haven't heard because it doesn't make it into the, 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 the standard story of Joan of Arc. The theologians are very concerned with what sign she'd given the Dauphin to prove that she came from God. And as I've said earlier, she can't simply say, well, I won at Orléans, because the theologian she's now talking to won't take that as, as proof that God was with her. What she ends up saying is that an angel had come to Chinon to present her Dauphin with a crown. And this angel had walked up the stairs into the king's chamber at Chinon and given him a golden crown that she said was still in her king's treasury. Now, we seem to be able to accept that St. Catherine, St. Michael, and St. Margaret might have spoken to Joan, but this story about an angel walking upstairs and handing over a crown in front of the whole court 
seems to stretch credulity a bit too far, whether for us or for the people listening to her in 1431. But so she's pushed a long way into making her story very real, very concrete. And this, it, it's clear, um, is part of a process where she is trying to assert the reality of what she's saying. And she does it with such confidence, it seems, because she is absolutely certain that God is going to rescue her. She says at one point, the sign that you need and it's the most certain one he could give you, is that God will deliver me from your hands. She's convinced that heaven will come to her rescue. And she's convinced of that until the day, 24th of May, 1431, when she's finally taken out into the open space outside the Abbey of Saint-Ouen in central Rouen for sentence to be pronounced. And she's standing on a scaffold with the executioner standing by, ready to take her to the stake. And the bishop, Bishop Cochon, who's the lead judge in the trial, starts to read the sentence. And in the middle of him reading the sentence, it seems to have been a moment of absolute horror for Joan, because this seems to have been the moment at which she realized help wasn't coming, because that's the moment at which she finally breaks. She's been so strong up to this point, And suddenly, in the middle of the sentence being read, she raises her voice. She says, I accept my guilt. I acknowledge my heresy. I submit. And a document is produced, listing her sins. She puts her mark to it. She's bundled back to prison. She's put into a dress, finally, the dress she'd refused to wear for so long. And her hair is shaved off. And she's told she's going to be a prisoner for the rest of her life. In other words, another part of the story that we don't typically get to hear is that Joan breaks. And it's, it's heartrending, really, to read at that point in the trial. And it's an awkward moment for the Armagnacs, isn't it, having been so closely allied with her, even if uh, to then have the you know, Charles as king. Absolutely. It looks, it looks at this moment as though that's it. She will spend the rest of her life in prison and her incarceration will serve as a lasting rebuttal of what the Armagnacs had claimed. But... <laughs> But then, of course, we, we, we know what happened, and eventually she can't live with herself and uh, with that decision. Four days later, the bishop was called back to her cell, found her once again in men's clothes, found her in a state of great distress. I think at this point in the trial, um, the transcript of what she says, she's had such clarity, such coherence before, and at this point, she's deeply disturbed, and what she's saying no longer makes sort of linear sense. But what she's saying, essentially, is that her vision, her voices have told her that she damned her soul to save her life out of fear of the fire, she says. And though she knows she's going to face a horrific death and she's terrified, she can't live with any, any other choice. And so just two days after that, she was burned in Rouen. Um, and it's interesting that in the 19th century, I think it was, um, Joan is then made a saint by the Roman Catholic... 20th century, yeah, not till yeah, 1920. 1920, she's made a saint and as you as you say in the sort of final pages of your book it's it's not often that a church burns someone at the stake and then makes them a saint i think i'm right in saying i think that joan is the only saint of the catholic church uh, to have been killed by the judgment of the catholic church which made her a very tricky saint to make because she couldn't become a saint as a martyr if you've been killed by the protestants or the pagans you're fine but um in this case she was made a saint the the argument for her canonization was that she was a holy virgin who had displayed the virtues to a heroic degree. And it took quite a bit of argument to, <laughs> to get there. Um, she, she, she's a very, the real, the historical Joan is a very tricky and uncomfortable figure in all sorts of ways for all sorts of people. 
I realise we're running out of time, and I don't. Sorry, want to, I talked too much. <laughs> I, I don't want to shortchange you uh, on questions. So I've got just a couple more final questions. Um, you were saying before that, uh, that you've uh, you've turned this into a program for the BBC, or a couple of programmes. One. They would only give us one. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, and, and how was that then tra transferring your scholarship onto the screen? It's, as always, it's a fascinating process. I feel very lucky to be able to do it, and and particularly, of course, to go back and film in Joan's footsteps to uh, to go to Domremy, to go to Orléans, to go to Rouen. Very interesting also to see how she is remembered in all those different places, because of course she's such a huge figure in France. Everywhere you go, there's a there's a Rue Jeanne d'Arc, or there's a statue, several statues. But if you go to Orléans. All the statues are warrior statues. She is the liberator of Orléans still, with her sword unsheathed. And several people said to us when we were there, why are you interested in her? You're English. She beat you. Yeah. Um, whereas you go to Doremi, and there she's the saint, uh, the saint for the whole world. The statues tend to be her in the field, seeing her saints. Um, very much a, a sort of universal individual, um, a, a universal figure for, for everyone. And that, that way in which she, she can be perceived in so, you know, she can be figured in whatever way you want her to be is fascinating, I think, about what's happened to Joan in her afterlife. Um, but working out how to tell her story, it's always a challenge to compress things into an hour, a challenge to convey enough of the history, enough of the emotion, enough of the human experience. Um, we were very lucky to get two brilliant actors. Uh, we, we haven't gone for full-blown reconstruction. I haven't got the budget for it, apart from anything else. But in order to make the trial come alive, we did want to use some of those those words that are there, it's so rare to have conversation actually recorded. And so we, we've got two brilliant actors just to do very sort of close-up um, exchanges between, between the bishop and Joan. So I, I hope that it will give a sense of bringing, bringing this extraordinary and very, very brief. She was, she was such a sort of um, shooting star on, on the historical stage two years from beginning to end, um, and most of that in prison, actually, or at least a whole year of that in prison. Um, I, I hope we'll have succeeded in bringing it to and life in some way. Coming up? Schedulers work in very mysterious ways, I'm afraid, so I don't know, but I'm hoping uh, the, the programme is finished um, and, and with the BBC, so I hope not too long. Yeah, and um, I wonder, what, do you have any plans for, for, the next, for the next book? I'm sure you're. Fans are waiting with bated breath. <laughs> uh, I'm not the fastest writer in the world, so I hope the breath is not too bated. Mm. Um, uh, well, the next thing that I can talk about, because it's been announced, is um, uh, you, you may know that Penguin are doing a um, series of very short, very beautiful books about all the monarchs of England and subsequently Britain from Athelstan to Elizabeth II. And I will be attempting Elizabeth I for that series. So... Elizabeth I in a very short <laughs> in a very short format will be a challenge but a fascinating one. Great. Well, um, thank you so much for answering all my questions. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.